All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 12. Let me pray, and then we'll, we're going to go in. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Um, I just pray, first of all, God, for everyone that's not here. Um, lots of sick people uh, that we know aren't here because of just not feeling well. And we pray, God, that you would um, heal them and make them feel better and uh, bring, their, bring them back here to their family and let them be a part of what's going on with worship and, and, and everything uh, from the weeks to follow. And Lord, I pray for everyone that is here. I pray for all of us, including myself, that we would pause here and maybe in the middle of all the things that's going on in the season, the busyness of life and all these kinds of things that are happening, that we would do our best to maybe put those things away in our mind and just kind of stop and think and focus on the fact that the God of the universe has written a book and we're going to read that book right now. We're going to study it and we're going to look at it and hear the God that created anything. We're going to hear His words. And that should give us reason to pause. That should give us reason to stop and and consider that this is a weighty, weighty time for us. Um, that whenever we engage your word, it is a weighty, weighty time. And that we should want to obey what it says. We should want to stop and consider what it says. And so... I pray for myself, Lord, as we, as we open this up, that you would help me see the weight of the fact that God of the universe is speaking to me and that I would want to, um, I would want to conform and change my life to the things that I'm hearing. I pray for each one here, Lord, that the same thing would happen, that as they hear from God this morning, that they would hope in the gospel, they would hope in Christ, and that they would want to conform their lives to what you're showing them and what, they're te- what you're teaching them. And I pray for myself, God, as I talk, that you would sustain my voice. But more than that, more than that, Father, that my words would be true. My words would be your words. And that what would be most helpful for all of us today would be the things that I'd say. We love you, Father. And just thank you for this time where we can gather together and worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're here in uh, Matthew, and as I said, we kind of preach through books, and so we started Matthew, and so for over the next two knows how long, maybe a couple of years, um, we'll be in Matthew. Uh, we will space that out. We'll we'll do some different stuff in there. Um, we actually, I've already got plans for uh, this spring, um, and sometime sticking in another book, an old an Old Testament book actually, and then going back, not sticking in, but actually studying it. Um, I don't want to make it sound like we're just doing it just to do it. Um, but we're going through Matthew right now. And so just a couple of things for you to know about Matthew before we go in. Some of this might be a review for some of you. But Matthew um, and Mark and Luke kind of have all the same feel. They're gospel narrative. They're, they're stories. And they all have the same feel. They're calling the synoptic gospel. Synoptic just means same eye. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of written with that same kind of feel. John's a little bit different. It is a gospel, but it has more of a theological foundation and it's covering some different kind of things than these other three. But these three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are written from that, from that one kind of feel. And each one of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have different... Um, reasons why they wrote. But Matthew, he wrote his book primarily to a Jewish audience. He wants to um, engage those who are Israelites and help them see as they look at this book that Jesus, I mean, this is the point, of, that's why he starts off with the genealogy. We see that Luke has a genealogy and he doesn't get to it till till chapter 3 because he's writing to Gentiles and genealogy wasn't even a big deal. And when he does a genealogy, he traces from Jesus all the way to Adam. But But Matthew here, he's writing to this 
to this Jewish audience. And he starts with Abraham. And every person that was Jewish would have said, Abraham, father of the Israelites. And so what he, he, he starts out with Abraham and wants to take us through this genealogy. And he takes us straight to Jesus. So the point of the genealogy, the point of this genealogy is this. <clears throat> and I've said this last week. Um, the point of every text is what you need to know. But the point of this genealogy is this is that Jesus is the coming Messiah. Now, that might be review for us. That might be review, but that's the point of this. Matthew's not just writing this. So just because it's review for you doesn't mean you need to, don't need to stop and take pause and think, okay, what does that mean then? Jesus is the coming Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. And that's why he wrote this genealogy, was to help all those who are Jewish see this guy, Jesus, is from Abraham. He is from David. And he is the anointed Messiah over us all. And that's the point of the uh, genealogy. And as we keep going through the rest of the book, that's really what, what Matthew is wanting us to see about Jesus the entire time. That Jesus is the Messiah. And over and over through his, through his gospel, he's going to tell us story after story, pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is the anointed one of Israel. He is the one who's come, the God-man, to save us all. Now, <clears throat> that's the point. That's the point. I could just pray and we could be done, but I'm not going to do that. There are some applications as we go through this, which I've been pointing out, and I'm even going to do a little bit more today. Um, and I'm hoping that these applications um, are things that you're taking and they're little handles that you can take and you can say, all right, based on Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one of God who has come to save me, all right, that's, that's kind of high, that's kind of theological I understand that means I need to have him for my salvation, but what, what are some handles that I can take with me this week and use? What are some things that I can think about, that I can process and maybe change in my life, some applications? And so um, there's three that we've been using throughout the entire week, uh, I'm sorry, the last three weeks, and I'm going to give you some more today. These, these first three, I think, are pretty important. Um, and the... We've been going through the Christmas season. Hopefully you're, you're getting close to getting all your stuff done. Um, but one of the things I've been wanting you to do here and, and kind of gather yourself uh, mentally is, all right, we're going into Christmas. We're going into the celebration of the birth of our Messiah. And so the first application is this, um, that we must strive to feel the weight and the thankfulness for Jesus for our salvation. Like the fact that this, this man was born, Jesus, who was God, was born. We should strive to feel and understand and be thankful for the weight of the fact that God became man. Um, to the same degree that the, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament saints, as it's written, they all knew this coming Messiah was coming, and they had a great, great anticipation about this coming baby, about this coming king. And the way that they felt, the, the, the anticipation that they had for that, we should strive to feel that same thankfulness for our salvation. We're looking at the cross and the birth of Jesus from two different places. They're looking at it before the birth and they're just as excited for it to come. But we're looking back and what I want you to do is be excited about salvation the same way that they were excited about the birth of Jesus. And so I want you to be super, super excited about your salvation and um, thankful for your salvation that you have. So as you're going through this Christmas period, as you're going through this season, consider the fact that you've been saved by God and foster within your heart thankfulness and gratefulness for that. So that's the first thing that we can see um, is an application. The second thing is this. Um, with the same love, prayer, and anticipation that these Old Testament saints looked for the first coming of Jesus, we should be, um, with the same love, prayer, and anticipation, be praying for, actively praying for, the second coming of Jesus. We know that the second coming of Jesus is when he ushers in his mighty kingdom and everything's over, like everything's done. The sin that you struggled with this week, that you hate, 
All that's gone at the second coming of Jesus. The way you feel whenever someone wrongs you, all that's gone. The, the sadness you feel whenever someone sins against you, not what sin that you've done, but when someone sins against you, all that's gone at the second coming of Jesus. I mean, everything is unbelievably perfect in heaven. And we should pray for that. We shouldn't just say, I mean, it's really easy for me. Um, and maybe you have this, like, things are pretty good. Like, I'm married, I have children, things are great. I love spending time with my kids, and I love being a pastor, and, and things are good, man. If, we, if I just kind of go through this right now, I, I'm not really experiencing any suffering. I have, no, I have no sickness, I have no cancer, I have all my children are healthy. God has blessed me, I mean, tremendously. We all have that same kind of experience, being that we live in one of the greatest countries in the world. It's really easy for us to just say, well, things are pretty good. I don't even think about the second coming. I got, you know, a bunch of cool things happening next week. And so um, what I want us to do is kind of not get so familiar with the world. Not so get so familiar in love with, with the things. And all these things are God's blessings. All these things are good things. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm thankful for my healthy family and children and things like that. But it should not, in my mind and in your mind, ever, ever take place or erase the fact that we should be praying for the second coming of Christ. We shouldn't be so comfortable in this world that we're not praying for no more sin, no more pain. I want to be with Christ. I, I see Him faintly right now, but that should never be satisfied with that. I prefer face-to-face. Face-to-face with the Savior. And there should always be this desire within all of us. And so that's one of the, the second applications is that we, the, the coming, I mean, the saints in the Old Testament were so excited about this coming Messiah. They knew that he was going to bring salvation for them and they were anticipating and wanting. And I think that we should feel that same desire for the second coming and pray that it happens in our lifetime. I pray that it happens in our lifetime. That's the second. The third application is this. Um, and we've seen as we've gone through here, through this genealogy, we've seen some pretty crazy stories and some pretty messed up people. And as we've seen that, we've seen God uses really, really messed up people, like really messed up people to bring about his purposes, which means that none of us, none of us are out of the realm of being used by God to accomplish his purposes. We've seen murder. We've seen adultery. We've seen a dad and a stepdaughter hooking up and having a baby. We've seen some, we've had, we've seen some pretty crazy stuff. And the whole point is that God is going to use, we've seen Gentiles, I mean, God is going to use people that are unexpected to bring about his purposes. So God is going to use you to bring about his purposes. He wants to use you to be instrumental in the lives of others. It's not just the, the job of the leadership of the church. It's not just the job of the pastor. It's not just the job of the ones you think are super spiritual to get used by God and do some things. He has specific plans for you to change people's lives, to share the gospel, to speak into them, to, to meet their needs, to give them some money, to buy the things they need, to buy them their books, to buy their kids Christmas toys. He's got, I don't know, he's got plans for you. And don't let your sexual sin think that you've been discounted. Don't let the fact that you um, never read your Bible feel like you're discounted. Don't let that you've never led your family spiritually make you feel like you're discounted. There is no sin that discounts you. If there's anything the genealogies are showing us, anything, that messed up people are being used by God to bring about His purposes. And so there isn't anything that we've done that keeps us from being used by God. So um, what we've been doing is kind of going through here and looking at some of the skeletons in the um, Jewish family closet. 
And it's been pretty cool. And what we've seen so far in the first part there, from, from verses 1 through 6, from verses 1 through 6, <clears throat> the, uh, the idea is kind of swelled up and swelled down the way these genealogies are going. And we can see that it's actually a swell back up. But in most Jewish minds, it's a swell back down. I, I'm going to explain that in a second. So verses 1 through 6, sorry about that. Verses 1 through 6, um, we can see that as we read through the genealogy, Jesus is clearly the central figure in this genealogy. But it's all kind of hinging on David. Like it's, it, David is, is the king of Israel. And everything's kind of leading up. So as in verses 1 through 6, we see the rise of the house of David. We see how Abraham brought us to Judah. And we come all the way down to where we finally see and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so we see this, this rise of the house of David. Um, and we see that there was a promise made to Abraham in verse 1. Let me just read you this, this Abrahamic promise that was made to him in Genesis chapter 12. Um, Abraham, not, not, a, not a particularly great guy, not anything special, um, didn't have anything going on. God just sovereignly came and chose him and said, Hey, um, I want to make you the father of my people. I, from you, all the way down, there's going to be a great nation built. And I, I want to use you to do it. And he made this promise to him in, in Genesis 12. It said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this little in you is really cool. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, we can, we can look back from, eternity, from, from this side of the cross and say, that's Jesus. Like in you, Abraham, you're going to have a line that's going to go through and there's going to be a Messiah coming and he's going to die for the sins of the world and all the families will receive blessing because of his death. They'll receive salvation. So that's the promise that he makes to Abraham. Um, and there's this rise of the house going to David. Since that promise was made, there's, there's this increase. And, and as we get to David, I mean, Israel is finally looking good. We've kind of talked about that, and I encourage you to maybe go grab the podcast. I'm not going to go through it. But we go through there, and Israel does become a nation. It does get its own land. And they, they come, and they say, we want to have a king. Now, we know that that wasn't the right thing because God was saying, I should be your king. But they want to have a king like all the nations. They want to have a person in charge. And so um, it was Saul for a little bit. And we, 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 if you know the story of Saul, it didn't work out so good for Saul. He wasn't, he wasn't God's anointed. But finally David came. And at the very pinnacle of Israel, the greatest time um, of what we can call the monarchy or the, the time where they had kings ruling over Israel and they had their own land, this was awesome. But it only took about a generation or so for things to go bad. Um, and it's really because of David's poor choices. Um, so that's the rise. And as we get into really verses 7 through 11, what we can see is the fall. We can see the fall of the house of David. Um, this is the promise that was made to David as he was king in 2 Samuel. And there's a little bit of, little bit of text here. Just kind of bear with me, but there's a little bit of text. And this is what God says to David. He comes to him and through Nathan, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture... And following the sheep, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name, like all the name, like the name of the great ones from the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, 
and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down in your fa- with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we can see there's, there's messianic um, talk in there. There's, there's saying, David, there's going to be from you a rise of a king that's going to come, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And so all the Israelites are hearing this, and they know this. There's a king coming. Like, this kingdom is going to be huge. And of course, as we read through the Old New Testament, we know that their anticipation of what this king was going to be like is far different from what Jesus was like. Um, and then it says, And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, <clears throat> as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So that's the Davidic covenant that was made, basically telling David, um, I'm going to make a kingdom for you. And from you, one day, this whole thing will be a kingdom. Like, my, my Messiah is going to come from you, and he is going to establish for himself a kingdom. And so... A, just a generation later, I mean, at the very end of David's life, uh, he he commits adultery, um, and he with this lady named Bathsheba, they have they have one son who dies, and then they have another son, Solomon, who takes over the kingdom. And then after Solomon, Solomon wasn't a great guy. We kind of talked about this last week, but um, he loved many foreign women, and as it says in First Second Kings eleven, and it tells us that these women here that were his um, love. They had pagan gods and he followed after their gods and he really kind of blended in um, his belief in God and their belief in God and, just, and it just went bad. The next generation, the next generation is whenever um, his son kind of split the kingdom and it was never the same. And so we see where the 12 tribes of Israel were kind of united um, under David and even under Solomon. After Solomon dies, they split up and 10 kingdoms go to the north and two go to the south. And then as we go through Matthew here, um, the way he does it for us um, in, in 7 through 12 is he just kind of shows us the kings of the south. That's all he does is just start talking about the kings to the south. Pretty much Matthew is ignoring the kings to the north. We know that eventually they're destroyed and there's just these kings to the south. And eventually, even at the end of this time, if you read in verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, Josiah kind of brings it all back. A love for the word happens. Um, People are getting right with God. And then Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, we see that Babylon comes in onto the south here. The only part that's even left, just these two kings, just these two uh, families, and he just destroys them, and then they're exported to Babylon. And so here we are at verse 12. Let, let me read verse 12. Um, and in the Jewish mind, as they're reading this, we want to hear this. We wanna, I want you to kind of hear this. We've seen the rise of the house of David, and we've seen the fall of the house of David. And as the Jewish mind, outside of not understanding Christ, hears verses 12 through 17, in their mind they're seeing an either further descent of the house of David. That's, that's the way they view it. However... For us, we see it as a re, kind of instituting of the house of David. It's coming back to us. Let's hear what it says in verses 12 through 17. And after the deportation to Babylon, 
And this is just, you know, fathers of people. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. And Abahud, the father of Elakim. And Elakim, the father of Azer. And Azer, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akam. And Akam, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matin. And Matin, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Finally, some names we recognize. And Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice that little transition. Jacob, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then he summarizes here in 17 everything that he's done. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ were 14 generations. So um, this last little part here, 12 through 17, is what we're going to be looking at. And it's not going to take us very long um, because most of these people actually aren't even in the Old Testament. Um, there's just a few that are even in the Old Testament. So we see Jeconiah takes over. It says, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah takes over. Now, I talked about this last week, but I, I believe this Jeconiah is the son of the other Jeconiah. That's in verse, uh, in verse 11. And it says basically that he takes over, and he wasn't a very good guy. He was, he was pretty evil. And then whenever he was king, King Nebuchadnezzar came in and besieged the city and took over, and he took King Jeconiah into captivity. And when he held him... It's kind of strange. Um, he actually, Nebuchadnezzar makes Jeconiah's brother become the king, um, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was approached by Jeremiah, the prophet. And it says in the Bible that he didn't humble himself before Zedekiah, didn't humble himself before Jeremiah, asking him to repent, asking him to follow God the way he should. Um, and so he kind of <clears throat> became, he didn't, wasn't king anymore, but still, Nebuchadnezzar still had Jeconiah kind of to himself, just held in captivity. And then after that, it's pretty weird that there was a, there was a king, they called him Evil Morodak. He, he kind of started, he came into power after Nebuchadnezzar. He started speaking kindly to Jeconiah, and the two of them became, you know, like BFFs. And then uh, Jeconiah just got to live with the, that king, Evil Morodak, the rest of his life. It said that he ate at his table, and Evil Morodak gave him a little allowance every once in a while. It's like, here's some money, you know, let's go, go play pinball or something. I, don't, I mean, it's really strange, like, the little relationship they have. Is, and then that was it. Like, that, that, that was it. This, um, but we know that Jeconiah did have a son, Shealtiel, and I don't know why I said pinball, but here's the, here's the point. Um, here's the point. Uh, at the end of Second Chronicles, before we get into something next, the end of Second Chronicles, there's this little two verses that are pretty extraordinary. Pretty extraordinary. Because God, God was pretty um, faithful still to these Israelites. Though we, we know that the reason why uh, kings kept falling and the reason why God allowed Babylon and really the north and the south to both be pretty much destroyed and not have a monarchy anymore, not have a king and just be destroyed and not have their land. We know the reason was because of sin. They would not repent of their sin. But God was still faithful um, to send them prophets. This is what Second Chronicles um, says. It says, The Lord, their God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. I mean, just consider this. It's just over and over said this king was did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And of course, it would just kind of infiltrate out into all the people. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord continually, continually just walking away from God, sinning just ridiculously, shutting down the temple, not doing the offerings, not giving God the worship and worth that he was deserving. And it says... 
I mean, just consider this compassion. It says, before the, the Lord, the God, their fathers, he kept sending them persistently messengers because he had compassion on his people. They would just walk away and he would just send them another prophet. And the prophet would say, repent, just turn back. Just consider where you are. Repent of your sin and come back. God wants to be your father. He wants to be your king. Let him. And they would sometimes either kill the prophet or just ignore him. And people would take over. And other, they, would, they would not continually repent. And then it says this. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. Despising his words and scoffing at the prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Until there was no remedy. And, I mean, I don't know where you are, but if you keep walking in sin, God's compassionate. There's no question about it. He's going to continually send people, messengers, if you will, to you, pleading with you, turn. I mean, the New Testament is filled with verses that tell us and exhort us to go to our friend that, friends that are in sin, go to those whom we love that are in sin, and plead with them with tears in our eyes, please walk back to Christ. You don't need to be in this situation. God's compassionate. There's no question. Even though you continually spit in His face and continue to have more deep, abiding, loving affections for sin than for Him in some seasons, He's going to still be compassionate. But make no mistake, all of us need to make no mistake, there will come a time, just like in verse 16, where we keep despising his words, scoffing at the messengers that he sends to us, and the wrath of the Lord will rise up. And and Romans 1 actually tells us when that happens, he, he changes us and gives us over to our debased minds. So don't ignore the words from me, or from your friends, or your loved ones, or your family members who are continually coming to you and saying, stop, turn to Christ, put your faith in Jesus. You don't have to walk down that path anymore. That's not what God wants, and that's not what what you want to do. I understand. Return back to Christ. If there's anything that we can learn from this situation right here, it's that God is compassionate towards us because of our sin. There's no question. But there's no reason for us to keep trying that and seeing how far we can walk. That's really just kind of using grace, making grace cheap. But he had a son. Um, he had a son, Jeconiah, named Shealtiel. And it doesn't really tell us much about him besides the fact that he had a son. And his son's name was Jerubbabel. Um, this is where it gets pretty interesting. <clears throat> um, for a while, Babylon had some power and Persia came in and just kind of destroyed Babylon and Persia took over. And the if you read the very end of Chronicles or the very beginning of Ezra, both of those uh, books kind of begin and end the same. They're clearly supposed to be together in the Bible. Um, the, second, the end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra both say the same thing. This new king that was over Persia, whose name was Cyrus, um, his heart began to be stirred. Now this isn't an Israelite, this is just a king, a pagan king. It says his heart began to be stirred by the Lord to build God a house back in Jerusalem. Now, it, it had been totally destroyed. 
um, whenever Babylon came and took over. But it says that this, ha- this, this king's heart began to be stirred. And so Zerubbabel was really, if there was still a monarchy, would have been the king at the time. But he wasn't. He, he was at least in the line. But Zerubbabel, um, who became really kind of the governor of Judah, we see that in one place. The Bible calls him the governor of Judah. Um, he led people back over to this decimated homeland um, and begins to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Now, what I want you to do now is flip over to me to, to Haggai, because um, this is where uh, Haggai was one of these prophets at the time. He was a contemporary of Zerubbabel. And remember I told you, these prophets would come and they would kind of say to the people, hey, this is going on and this isn't good. You need to stop doing that. You need to repent of that. You need to get right with God. And so here we are in this time where they've been exiled um, to Babylon. Persia takes over and this king's heart, uh, Cyrus, is being stirred and he starts letting these, these Israelites go back over to this land. And they get to this land where they once had a temple and they once had a place. Um, and they start doing some stuff and they start building some stuff. And this is what happens. Um, look at uh, verses chapter 1, verses 3 for me. Chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell... I'm sorry, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Basically, he's saying, there is no temple. We have nothing. And you're making paneled houses. You're making these these nice things. You're not just kind of throwing something up and saying, all right, we've got something to live in. Now let's build the temple. You're making paneled houses. And there's nothing over here. And he's saying, isn't it time for us to rebuild the house of God? Um, And it says, now therefore... Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never have enough. You drink, but you, ne- but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And basically, he's just saying, look, it's time for us to, to return and get things right. Now, flip over, not flip over, stay in Haggai. Go over to verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. And then it says this, Then Zerubbabel... Where it says where we are in history in, in the in the things Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. So we see Zerubbabel is good. This is awesome, um, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And Haggai the messenger. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the, with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the spirit of the remnant of the people. Remember, this, there was just a small little remnant. We had 12 tribes, and then they all got destroyed, and there was two, and that got destroyed, and they kind of went into exile. And there's just this little, small little sliver of remnant of Israel that's being held out. And the only reason that's there is because God made a promise to David. God made a promise. I'm going to keep one little remnant, and I'm going to have my son come, come through that remnant. Because, but because of your disobedience and your unwillingness to repent of sin, you're not going to have it like you had. And it says, um, the small remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of, of their host, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month of the second year of Darius, the king. So we see here <coughs> that they finally... Uh, are building this thing. And we, we know that in uh, 515 B.C., um, about 500 years before the coming of Christ, that they build the house. 
to build the temple, I should say, for God. Now, flip over. You may need to flip. It's, it's in um, the same book of Haggai. Look at 2.20. Look at 2.20. One more little thing about Zerubbabel. It says, The word of God came a second time to Haggai on the 24th of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. And there it is, governor of Judah. So we see that Zerubbabel had this position after some time to become governor. It wasn't a king. Um, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the, overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's telling him, in so many words, that I've chosen you. I'm going to carry out this, this plan that the Messiah would come through you. Now, here's the deal. Um, I, used to, uh, I used to live up in Fort Mill, and maybe about uh, five years ago, four years ago, I can't remember, um, the show Move That Bus came to, to Charlotte. Um, I forget what it's called. Extreme Home Makeover. Ty, I'm going to build your house, that kind of thing. Um, and so they came to Charlotte. And so we were... You know, my, my, I had a daughter, well, I still have a daughter, but at, at that time, my, my girls loved watching that show. And so we went up to Charlotte, we went up to the house um, and watched them build the house. It was like the hottest day in America. It was like 125 degrees outside. It was ridiculous. Um, all the water was gone. I'm just kidding. But uh, anyway, so we're there in Charlotte in, in the beginning of August, and they're building this house. And so one of the things that kind of amazed me, if, you've, if y'all went to it, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Um, and you can just watch it whenever, if you ever watch it on Sunday nights, you can watch it. Whenever it's time to, to bring the limousine in and they, they have the big bus there and they, everybody starts chanting, move that bus, move that bus. And they move the bus and like all oh, the crowd's going insane and they move it and the people start crying. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that's pretty interesting is I always think, first of all, people are really excited about these other people seeing their house. Like crazy excited. Um, and the second thing is, the person, they, they stick the mic in their face, and they're like, I just thank you all, come and support me. They're all crying, I don't even know you, but you came. And clearly, they all came to try to get on TV. It's not because they know them, they just want to get on TV. But the main thing, my whole point is this, um, you go to that, and there's just this manufactured, and I'm not kidding, I mean, it is not real. I don't think it's real. It's manufactured emotion. The person comes out, hey, we're going to start the camera. Everybody starts screaming, and everybody starts going crazy, ah! And so um, there's this manufactured emotion for people that we don't even know about having a house that was that was pretty pretty bad, and now it's pretty awesome. And they have this you know great thing and all this kind of stuff, and everybody's just going berserk, going crazy. Here's the point: um, that's not really that big a deal. But for the people of Israel who had no temple, who had no house, can you imagine the satisfaction they felt as they were exiled and then finally they come back and it's not even the same as it used to be. It wasn't the temple that Solomon built, but it was a temple. Can you imagine, not this manufactured emotion, but the real feeling that the people might have had as, as we hear that Zerubbabel was walking with God and they finally, after all these years of sin and all these years of not wanting to repent, there's just a remnant. It's not like it was before where they had all 12 it's just a remnant it's just something small but we have the temple and we have god can you imagine the emotion in 515 when they look at the temple and they say we have this praise be to god um there shouldn't be some kind of manufactured emotion that they would have and for us we should see the weight of that we should see what it means to be able to have a right relationship because it wasn't about a building 
It wasn't about a building at all. It was about being restored back, finally, in, in, in some semblance, though it's not even like what it was, being restored back to being the people of God and being where you should be. That feeling is unbelievable. And I'm just going to tell you, like I've had that in my life. I've had times where things were great, and I had this really dark period. I can just go ahead and tell you, when the Lord finally was kind and is gracious to bring me back, compassionate to bring me back, the feeling of finally being back, and I wasn't like, I wasn't, as, in my mind at least, <clears throat> as clean as I thought before, because I had gone through this sin. But the truth is that because of justification, God sees me as Jesus. And so there was this, this joy in my heart that I had, knowing that I'm I'm in relationship with God the way that He desires. I'm restored back. And I, the, the joy that it gives me to know that I was so far and then brought back is overwhelming. And that joy will be and can be yours if you would come back. Just like Luke 15, whenever we see the prodigal son is far off. The dad, if you, if you read the story, it's not like the dad is like chilling in his house, just, you know, doing whatever. The, the story as we read it, when the prodigal son finally, who had lived a life of sin, finally starts coming back, it says that the dad was able to see him from a long distance, way off. It means the dad was sitting, just waiting. When's he going to come back? And this is a picture of our, our God the Father, warning you, pleading with you, providing people to come to you. Come back. And when you do, I mean, the, the overwhelming satisfaction and feeling of knowing that you're back into right relationship with God, it is so unbelievably joyful. Now, I want to read you a, uh, a little, little part of this book here. This is D.A. Carson. Um, this is called The God Who Is There. And in these couple paragraphs, he's going to kind of walk us through where we are. The rest of the people after Zerubbabel, by the way, go into what is known as the intertestamental period. I brought us to 515. Um, and then we have one more book that really kind of talks a little bit, and that's Malachi. And that's about bringing the tithe and etc. But really what we go into is a period of silence. Like God brings them back and all of a sudden he tells Haggai, um, Zerubbabel, I've got a signet ring, something's coming great. And then we enter... No more. Like there's nothing. God's not speaking to them through his word and, and talking to them. And we, we go about four or five hundred years until this baby's born. Four or five hundred years of just silence. I mean silence. It's called the intertestamental period. And really all these other people that Matthew lists after Zerubbabel, um, where we go into Ebiud and Elakim and Azer and Zadok and Achim and Eliud and Eliezer. All these people are just in that intertestamental period. Like... There is nothing about them in the Bible besides right there. They're in this dark time. And, <laughs> I mean, just, just as a point of making a little bit of application on that, I want you to just think with me if you could. Um, can you name your parents, their names? I, th I would think so. You can probably name your parents. Can you name your grandparents? Can you, can you name your grandparents? Like, do you know their first names? I can. Can you name your great-grandparents? I have no idea. I mean, most of us probably can't. We're all about three generations away from being completely unknowns, just like these people in the intertestamental period. We're all three generations away. Your great-grandkids will probably not know your name unless God just grants you like 125 years of life. 
So it makes no sense at all for us to live for our own glory and for our own name. Because we're three generations away from being forgotten. The only thing that makes sense is to live for the glory of Christ. His name will continue to go on and on and on. It only makes sense to live for His glory and not our own. Because everybody will forget you in a hundred years. More than likely. I mean, we may have a George Washington in here. But more than likely, we're all forgotten. So it only makes sense to live for the glory of Christ. All right, so here's... Here's uh, D.A. Carson talking about this period, basically, from these genealogies here in Matthew. And he says, all of this takes place, as I've said, in about a thousand years, um, starting at 1000 B.C. There are, a lot of inter- <clears throat> there are a lot of intervening developments before Jesus appeared. After several centuries, the Davidic kingdom itself has become corrupt. Two mere generations later, the kingdom splits into northern and southern kingdom, and David's line rules only over the south. Two and a half more centuries go by, and the northern kingdom has never has has never has established as a dynasty. Kings come and kings go. The new usurper comes and slaughters all the children of the previous one. It is a brutal mess, replete with many forms of idolatry. Eventually, the leaders are carted off into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. Another century and a half goes by. And the Davidic dynasty in the south itself is so corroded and so corrupted, despite occasional times of revival and renewal, that at the beginning of the 6th century, about 587, it is destroyed. That's whenever the south is destroyed. The Babylonians have taken over, and many of the leaders are taken over into exile, this time under Babylonian empire, which has replaced the Assyrian. In due course, God brings some of them back, initially only about... 50,000 or so. They rebuilt the temple that had burned down, but by comparison with the great temple built by the t- David's son Solomon, this structure is a pathetic little affair. There still is no king. By this time, they are living under Persian rule, which gives way to Greek authority, and then to the Roman Empire. So we travel all the way down to the turning ages from B.C. to A.D., and still there is no restored Davidic king on the throne. The Israelites always find themselves under one authority or another. Now the regional superpower is Rome, and the local monarchs are are ruthless, petty kings like the Herods. So, I mean, if you can just imagine with me, the rise of the Davidic king, kingdom, and there is rule and reign, millions of people, 12 tribes, all overseen by David, greatness, sin, 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 defeat, defeat. They finally have this little thing, and then God basically goes dark. I mean, that's it. Nothing for about four or 500 years. And they're just waiting. Can you imagine that low point you're in? Can you imagine the despair that the people are in. No prophets coming to them and speaking. No government, really. Barely anything. And then there's talk of a baby that's been born. There's a baby that's been born. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's going to be the one that's going to finally come and restore these people, restore us to what we used to have. You can just imagine the Jewish mind as they hear this baby. They're thinking, we're finally going to get to go back. They had no concept that it was going to be a spiritual kingdom. Salvation not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Everyone in this room will be engrafted in. 
This kingdom is far more greater than we could ever in our Jewish mind imagine. There's talk of a baby. Praise God for verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And just notice Matthew is really wanting us to see that this was a virgin birth. There's no question he's wanting us to see. Joseph was a good guy. We know he's a good guy. We'll talk about that on the 24th. We see in two separate occasions and just the next verses where 19, Joseph was a good guy. He doesn't want to put Mary to shame. And again, over in uh, 24, the angel came to Joseph and told him to do something and he obeyed. So we know Joseph has got a good heart. Um, and it says, And Joseph, the husband of Mary, who, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ... And so we get to, finally, this anointed one, Jesus, who's come to save us. And so we read this from the prophet Isaiah, and it all starts trying, coming to make sense. For unto us a child is born. Just consider where they were, the low, the despair. And they're hearing these words from the prophet Isaiah. They knew these words. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And there's talk of this baby. He's finally come. The people's hearts had to have just been gloriously excited. Can you just imagine how they felt? And so what I want to do here is just close, close with the gospel. But from a kind of a side perspective here, I want to look at Paul in Romans chapter 3. And I want us to, from the perspective of Paul, Gentiles, understanding that we've been talking about the Old Testament people looking forward to the Son. I want us to hear the gospel right here. This is starting in 321. But now... A baby's been born, and it's God himself who's been born. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God is Jesus. God himself. Jesus has been manifested. He has been shown to us. This righteousness has given to us apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They talk about him. They talk about him coming. The righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we can have righteousness and it's through faith in Christ Jesus for everyone who believes. For there is no distinction. Here's the worst news ever. But it's the best news ever because of 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? It's when you fall short of the glory of God. Every moment, all of us are under the commandment to live for the glory of God. When we don't live for the glory of God, even if we do a good thing, but it's for the glory of ourselves, it wasn't done for the glory of God, and we have sinned, every one of us, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Awesome news in 24. And are justified by His grace. You can be justified, declared righteous, declared 100% innocent because of God's grace. Completely unmerited favor. You did nothing to deserve this. Because he says, by his grace as a gift. Made available to you right now if you had put your faith in Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 
God put his son forward to absorb all the wrath. Because here's the deal. There was, from Old Testament up until the cross, lots and lots and lots of wrath being stored up that had not been poured out on anyone or anybody at all. And he put forward his son to be the person that would absorb all the anger that God had towards sin. He put him forward as a propitiation. That's just the absorber of the wrath of God. He put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood. We know that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood. To be received by faith. And if we would put our faith in Christ, we can be forgiven. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, that means patience. In his divine forbearance, in his patience, this is amazing. He had passed over former sins. That means there was, from the time of the cross beforehand, plenty of people standing on the side saying, Your God, He is not righteous. All these people are sinning. He's supposed to destroy every one of them. What's going on? Your God's not just. And God is just. I mean, He's told us over and over. And so they had this case against God. Why is he passing over these sins? Why He's not just. He's supposed to be pouring out his punishment on on people for their sin. And God, in his divine sovereignty and his divine plan, said, I am just because there's coming a day where I'm going to put my own son forward to die. So someone's going to get it. I am not pouring it out on them right now. I am divinely forbearing. I'm being patient. I'm passing over their sin right now because if they're putting their faith like Abraham in the coming Messiah, then they will receive forgiveness as well. We're all saved the same way. Everybody in the Old Testament is saved by faith in the Messiah. In the New Testament, we're all saved by faith in Jesus. We just get to know his name. We're all saved the same way. But there was a case made against God that he's not, su- not fair, he's not just. And he's saying there's a day coming. The cross stands as the centerpiece of all human history because it was the day where we all saw the justice of God. He is just. He did punish sin, but he didn't punish you and me. He punished his son for us. Everything you've done. All forgiven at the cross. I mean, just amazing. Amazing. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, at the time of the cross, so that he might be just, so no one can say he's not just. But not only is he just, because he finally punished sin, but he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, because he gave his own son. That is astounding. He could have just been just, honestly. He could have just been just. You're all going to be punished now. But he also was the justifier. The one that saves us. And it's all grace and it's all a gift because none of us deserved it. Then what becomes of our boasting? Do you have any reason to boast? It's all excluded and I'm not Paul. I mean, I'm not Paul at all. But let me just kind of throw a little idea in there at least. Um, what becomes of our worship? It's enhanced. When we understand this, I mean, I'm not saying Paul should have thrown that in there. It's just an idea. But what becomes of our worship? It's enhanced. But we have no reason to boast. By what kind of law? Not by law of works, no. But by the law of faith. We hold that one is justified. One is made right by God with God by faith. 
apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? The Jews were looking for this coming Messiah. They were looking for this King. But God in His plan said, I'm extending salvation not just to those Jews who were looking for me, but for the Gentiles that weren't even looking for me. That's all of us. Oh man, that's so kind to us. To the Gentiles only. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews or Israel, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So the, the clear application for us all is faith in our, in our Messiah, the Anointed One. The one that all of Matthew and all of the Bible is pointing to as our Savior. And we have great reason to celebrate. Great reason to worship. Because what we deserved was punishment. What we deserved was hell. And he poured all of that out on his own son for us. All of our boasting is excluded and all of our worship is enhanced. And that's why... The coming of the Messiah is a time that we should look forward to with such thankfulness in our hearts for our salvation. God is good to us, extremely good to us. And may we try to, in our best efforts, continually remind ourselves day by day just how good He is to us and not forget, not get so enamored with the world and His blessings and his gifts and forget the creator who gave us all those things because his gifts are good but they're only supposed to be means that point you to the end which is him his gifts are not the end my family is not the end my good health is not the end being a pastor is not the end those are means to rejoicing in our king so as we go into our time of worship I just want to encourage you, however God is leading you right now, however He's wired you, whatever is going on in your heart, that maybe you would, you would pray, maybe you would confess, maybe you would just pray some thanksgiving. I don't know where you are. You might need to repent of sin. You might need to be restored. Or maybe you're just so overwhelmed with joy right now, you just need to pray for some, for some thankful, thankfulness and say, thank you, God, thank you so much, and then just stand and sing with us. I'm going to pray and however God's leading you. I just encourage you to stand and, and, and rejoice with us as we worship together. We do our worship at the end because we've, we've seen that if God has revealed himself to us in this book through his word and we've heard from him, then now our right time, our right response is to response to the revelation of his word. So however he's wired you, I invite you with the way he's wired you to respond. Maybe that's with hands raised. Maybe that's with your knees to the ground. Maybe that's with your face on the floor. I don't know. We're all wired differently. But would you respond the way that the Holy Spirit's leading? And as we leave, would you respond that way too? With worship. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. More than that, thank you for your son our King, the one who saves us. I thank you for the price that he paid on the cross where we received forgiveness, where we can now be restored to right relationship with you.
be with my friends now, Father. If anyone doesn't know Jesus, I pray that they would come find me afterwards, that they would find the person they came with during worship or afterward church and, and ask them, how can I know Jesus? How can I know this person that can save me? And for us that know Jesus, maybe we just need some, some encouragement. I pray that we would go to one of our friends and tell them where we need it and ask for them to pray for us. This, this season can be tough if we don't have family, if we don't have a lot of people around us. So if people need people around them, they have a family here at this church. I pray, Lord, that they would seek that out, that they wouldn't let themselves spend this time alone because they have a family here. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are our Father who loves us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.